0: Hey there, you're listening to the Water and Music podcast, where we unpack the fine print of big ideas in the intersection of music and tech, featuring a curated slate of innovators, leaders, artists, and thinkers from across the music business. I'm your host, Sherry Hu. Today's guest is Garrison Snell, who's the founder and CEO of Gyrosity Projects, a digital marketing agency based out of Nashville. He started the agency in 2015 while attending Belmont University, and he and I met just a few years afterwards at the Music Biz conference. I also interviewed him for a Forbes article I wrote back in 2017 about compensating music curators and influencers because he also runs a playlist and music promotion outfit called Crosshair Music under the Gyrosity umbrella. On the digital marketing side, he's worked with the likes of Billy Ray Cyrus, Paul Cardall, and Kenny Loggins. More recently, in June 2018, Gyrosity was acquired by a larger multinational marketing agency called the Stadium Red Group, which is based in New York City. I wanted to invite Garrison on this podcast, not just because he and I think quite similarly about the music industry and where it's headed, but also because he has a lot of interesting takes on music marketing specifically and on the current job prospects for music marketing specialists, given that he recently went through an exit himself. So in this episode, we touch on everything from this ongoing consolidation of marketing agencies, both inside and outside of music to whether it's actually a good idea at all to start a new music marketing agency in today's landscape, to the extent to which record labels now compete with these agencies for clients as labels move towards more of a service rather than an ownership model, and last but not least, the impact of trends like marketing automation and the gig economy on how marketing works for music, what automation cannot replace, and importantly, why artists should even care in the first place. So let's dive right in. Hope you enjoy it. Hey Garrison, thanks so much for joining this podcast.
1: No, you're very welcome. I'm happy to be here.
0: First off, I want to talk more generally, beyond music, about the world of marketing and advertising agencies in general. Because we're both part of this music and entertainment industry listserv called Pho, named after the Vietnamese noodle soup and... You had sent this super interesting email to the group about how you noticed a lot of agencies and traditional consulting companies as well have been essentially buying up a lot of smaller, more boutique agencies and then centralizing their common resources. So like centralizing all the finance, admin and business development services into one company. And I guess you went through this experience yourself and that your company was acquired by the Stadium Red Group. But as you pointed out, this is kind of happening across the board at companies like WPP and Omnicom. And then in the consulting world, there's this really interesting article you pointed to that I'll link to in the show notes as well that talks about how consulting firms like Ernst Young and Deloitte are also going down this route. So if you could start from there, I would love for you to talk about why you think this is happening. Um, What you think is the motivation to consolidate like this from the agency side. And then you also mentioned that this actually leads to better outcomes for clients of these agencies as well, in addition to the agencies themselves. So if you could start from there.
1: For sure. Absolutely. And you you summarized it really well. Um, For a little background, we had a a digital advertising agency that came out of the entertainment and music world, ended up building a pretty good book of business over a few years into uh, brand marketing, uh, entertainment artist marketing, and release marketing, mainly centralized around digital advertising and, and social. And, and, you know, the thing that I kind of noticed and, and I didn't think it about for a few years was when I started my agency, I mean, you walk into a Starbucks or, a, you know, a coffee shop or something, it's like everybody with a laptop was a, a new digital agency, right? There's was like everybody with a laptop and Facebook ads was like they were doing the thing. And so you had all these new entrants in the space between the time that Google AdWords was first launched and Facebook Ads will launch. was about a 10 year difference. He um, had all these agencies that kind of rushed in, managing social, building websites, whatever. So he kind of reached this point where there hasn't been a new medium yet that's come, right? There was display, then there was search, and now there's social. We don't have a new advertising, digital advertising medium yet. So you're seeing this kind of consolidation happen where agencies that are really good at a, a portion of that world are getting rolled up into Basically getting rolled up, up and down kind of the value, the value chain of the folks to the left or right of them. So consultancies that do marketing strategy are now buying boutique agencies that will tactically execute it. Or, you know, branding agencies will, uh, buy experiential companies and digital agencies to, you know, carry out the brand messaging that they, um, that they maybe they devise, devise for a client. So. So the benefit really for the agencies is pretty obvious. You know, you end up centralizing, like you said, a lot of the things that you have to have to run the business, but that you may not necessarily need in order to execute the value proposition, right? You have to have biz dev, you have to have admin and finance and HR and all that good stuff. Um, you can centralize all that and share those resources. Um, you can share account management and share you know, all the things I just mentioned. But for the clients, what you end up with is you end up with these... Um, really flexible agency collectives or in, in some case agency networks that are centralized and held by a common group, um, by a common company. And when the client engages one of their uh, subsidiaries, they you know engage with an account manager and engage with an account team. They never lose that team as you go through and hire them for other services. So um, let me give you kind of an anecdote, kind of an example. You know, when, when I was out on my own at Gyrosity, we had a, um, a pretty common problem where a client would come to us and say, Hey, I've got to hire four or five other agencies to do different things that you guys don't do. You know, are you guys capable of handling PR or whatever? And the answer was no, we don't do those things because we can't do them. And so the marketing director's job at our client ended up being just basically managing a bunch of agencies, right? They ended up, um, Having to basically manage these agencies, not doing any marketing and you had to like basically duplicate a whole bunch of that extra effort. They had to onboard five different agencies, manage five different points of contact, uh, manage five different scopes of work. Um, and, and it was a lot of this duplication of effort and super inefficient for most folks in that role, which was, and you know, it was not really why they got into that role in the first place, right? So um, for a lot of these, a lot of these clients, what ended up happening was Agency groups like what about mine, uh, my company? Basically, they now can go to one point of contact and say, "I want to stand up this month a digital advertising scope of work, a video production scope of work, and a website scope of work. And next month, I want to tear that down and stand up an experiential scope of work and a PR scope of work." And you never have to duplicate all of those efforts. It's pretty nice, actually, and um, ended up ended up being something that. For me, I think it's common in a lot of industries. It's just part of the natural business cycle, right? You have uh, new entrants, consolidation, disruption, new entrants, consolidation, disruption, right? So we're just in the consolidation phase, the next consolidation phase of the marketing services world. Um, yeah, and that's that's basically kind of my view on it.
0: That's so interesting. So. In the case of Stadium Reds specifically and what you're doing with Gyrosity, I saw on Stadium Reds' website that Gyrosity is just one of a handful of agencies under that company now. So just to clarify, do each of those agencies also have their own specialization that's different from what you might be specializing in, which is more on the digital advertising front?
1: Yeah, yeah, they do. So there are, um, how many are in the group right now? I think, but in this year, there'll be seven Um yeah, no, no. Excuse me, there'll be five by the end of this year. Um, yeah, there's a few others that are on the docket, but they all have their own specializations. Yeah, we have a branding firm that branding strategy. There's a creative, uh, excuse me, um, an experiential agency coming on this month. We're the digital team. There's a video production team, and these are all different brands with their own different clients. That you know, we cross sell and we share resources. Um, but, but, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that we were doing at Generosity, you know, we ended up stopping, we ended up not, we don't do anymore. You know, like we used to do um uh customer service on an e-commerce website. So folks would build an e-commerce site with us and then run ads and their customers would start complaining they weren't getting enough attention. So we offered a customer service, you know, uh, kind of community management service for managing like chat bots and stuff on your e-commerce website. And we stopped offering that, you yeah. know. Things that like are are not really within our skill set, um, and the Stadium Red Group, like I said, is a new player in the space. Um, there have been agencies groups around that have done a lot of this, uh, but, but today, there, you know, it's really looking like a lot of older firms are moving into the tactics phase. Right? You have strategy firms, folks that were, you know, traditionally strategy. Uh, offering buying up tactical specialists like uh
0: Right. That's super interesting. And actually one trend that maybe is not directly related, but to me has some similar dynamics is the changing value proposition of record labels. Um, and I'm thinking last month in early August, I was moderating a panel at a small conference called the Hudson Valley Music Summit about the feature of labels. And one of the core questions that I presented to the speakers was simply, what is the purpose of a label? Right? Like, What is the primary function of a label today? And one of the speakers kind of came forth and said verbatim that now one of the purposes of a label is to, quote unquote, create viral moments. And that was super interesting to me because uh, during this panel, we also brought up how the traditional function of a label is to monetize master recordings you know, or it's about copyright. It's about building up a really good catalog of intellectual property. But no, now it's also about creating viral moments. And that's arguably more of the forte of a lot of these independent marketing agencies, because that's more of a marketing function than a copyright exploitation function. And so as a result of that, I feel like labels are kind of realizing that While they've always had some kind of internal marketing or advertising expertise, that's becoming even more of an imperative now to the point where, well, I'm curious as to whether you also think this, to the point where labels are now competing with outside marketing agencies in terms of services that they can potentially provide to artists. So do you think that they're directly competitive now, or do you think they're still totally separate companies?
1: Yeah, no, it's a really good question and a really good thought. Um, it, it's, it's kind of gotten murry, or murky, excuse me. It's kind of blurry in, in music, and I mean, this, this is my kind of opinion on it. Um, you know, it, it's happening in brands where they're building in house agencies, right? Like there are um, plenty of CPG brands who started building in house agency service themselves and, and service they're their partners, their retail partners. Same thing, I think, is happening in music. Where when I when I first started running Facebook ads in like 2012. It was hard to convince um, at least anyone in Nashville at the, the major labels that I spoke with that they needed to staff up tactical digital folks internally. Right, they, they just that wasn't what that team was for at the time. It, what I'm seeing today is labels um, actually honestly put distribution into that as well. Maybe even distribution companies more so starting to build uh, exploitation departments. Right, that are doing digital. They're like basically saying, how can we buy or bring in great digital advertising and growth folks, great branding folks, great partnership folks, um, and, and build what essentially looks like a, a good agency internally just for us. Um, there's really two good examples of this that I can that I know of, I can think of. Um, uh, one of which I didn't experience personally and another, which I did, uh, there's a, obviously everybody knows Roar out in LA, um, And back in 2009, they acquired a social media management agency here in Nashville called Gorilla. Um, And it's, from my understanding, I've never really worked with them, but from my understanding, you know, there's some sort of preferred rate or some sort of preferred um, relationship between rural clients and the social media services that Gorilla would perform. In the same way, uh, I worked for an organization called ThinkSwell for a little bit, which is a... Back in college, which uh, is a small digital agency in Nashville that was owned by Fitzgerald Hartley. Um, and basically the idea was, let's build an agency um, in-house and let's use them on our clients and you know, basically have, have first access to some really talented folks for our clients. And then if we can pay, if it can pay for itself by servicing other clients, then so much the better. With the best fruits um, kind of reserved for the roster of management clients that Fitzgerald Hartley had. And, and so you know those kind of hybrid models, um, as far as marketing agency versus label, the difference. It's interesting because um, it's actually a project I'm working on right now. You know, with with the kind of marketing knowledge that I have, the question is, can I set up a uh, a label to exploit certain copyright that I have access to, a certain you know intellectual property that I have access to, um, and share in that? And, and I'm finding that just you know, there, there are just certain disciplines that labels do very well or, or at least say they do well and, and one of those is scale, right, like the scale of, really scale of three things, finance, distribution, and administration, right, like, and you, you can piece all that, you can piece all that together, absolutely, you can piece all that together and I think it's getting easier and easier to piece all that together with so things like Trust and Merlin, you know, and, and like, you can kind of start piecing together um what you need, um, and, and then really at the core of it, if you can get it pieced together and the finances all work, then yeah, you're really just at the core a really awesome marketing team. You know, you're just really at the core like a really great marketing team. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I think that that's I think that's just the truth in a lot of industries that a really great marketing team can be built either to sell its services in kind of mercenary form to whoever wants to buy it, or they can use it to grow their own their own uh, interests, you know, their, their own brands, or in this case, their own copyrights, their own intellectual property. So.
0: so now I wonder what this means for the market opportunities specifically for starting a new music marketing agency. Uh, because as you kind of pointed out um, in the beginning, it's just super crowded and fragmented right now, and a lot of these companies are providing the same services and joining forces as a result. So I would just love to get your take on that? Like, what do you think the prospects are for someone who may be listening to this podcast, who maybe is thinking about starting an agency in the music industry from the ground up?
1: Yeah. It's funny. yes that. I thought about this a little bit. I just, whew, I mean, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I think part of it's just because I went through it. Right. So I've got a little bit of a, a you know, scabs and scars, but um, and part of it is I'm not sure that today, Um, well, okay, let let me, let me back up. If I have to think about it strategically and really kind of zoom out on it, I think because there's no new medium, right? Because we don't, I mean, it's really from a digital advertising perspective, all lumped into display search and social right now, right? Those are like the three things. And there are other ways to, um, other ways to go about cutting that up, like IP targeting or, you know, cookie targeting or whatever other ways to kind of get at that. But the three mediums are really those right there. And, and everything from TikTok to Facebook, like they're all considered social until we have a new medium. You're not going to have a new take on, um, really digital advertising and for people to build a business around. So, okay, you got to put that to the side and say, how do we do what we, how do, how do we do what we have today better? And I think the only way you can go is deeper. Um, I really think that, like, if this specifically in music, if I was going to build something today, what I would want to own is a network of micro, micro influencers. I'm talking probably a hundred thousand of them that all share, uh, probably all range between 500 and 5,000 followers a piece on a variety of platforms in one genre, like one type of, of music that I can activate for any for any release at any point. And it's not about, and um, it's, it's not really about selling it as a service. I would probably sell it as a partnership, as like a as like a like like an exploitation arm for um, uh, some part of the release strategy, right? So like there, there was a, a, an app many years ago called Thunderbolt, things called Thunderbolt. And basically what you would do is you would have all your fans or followers, whoever... Uh, just sink into this platform, authorize into this platform, and at a certain time, on a certain day, whenever it mattered most to the business, all of these accounts would be programmatically required to post the exact same message at the exact same time. Oh,
0: and that's, wow, okay.
1: Yeah, and, and that and that's what I'm talking about. So I'm saying for music, I would love to own a version of that for releases for music, which there, there are those things out there. They're just small and hidden. And you got to kind of look for them. I don't even know a lot of their names, um, but I do know um, I do know some folks that uh, pr- provide services like that, and it's usually just like their friends and a text message thread, and they get paid a couple thousand bucks to have all their friends post about it. And it's like usually, you know, cool kid influencers out in LA, right? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. it's like you see what I'm saying. And I know Atlantic does a bunch of that, but um, so what I would want is I would want a platform that that did all that and and i would want to um really truly dig deep into one specific type of music i don't think you can do it for many different types of music i think you dig really deep into like for me it would be digging deep into like instrumental music you know um instrumental piano music or instrumental guitar music like background music and if i think about it from a tradition traditional agency model where I'm selling services on a retainer or a project basis, um, you know, typically with some strategy involved or, or tactics involved. As, as kind of an outsourced um, arm of some larger organization, I, I just don't think you're gonna. How do I say this? I don't. I don't think you're gonna see a lot of new entrants until we get a new medium in the. I'm an in the. I'm an expert. Uh, You know, value proposition, like I'm an expert in X. You know, we have plenty of experts in Facebook ads and Google ads or whatever. What we need is someone who's gotten deeper and deeper into the thing that matters to me. You know, like the thing that matters to me, the client, and and it's really, really deep in that, and that's what they do. Um, Which, to me, is not lucrative. I mean, it it really could be lucrative, right? But it's just very, very... It's so specific.
0: Yeah, exactly. There is a sort of natural ceiling that you're putting on yourself by focusing on a specific niche like instrumental music.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I know guys out in LA that do this in kind of a haphazard way and make very significant money doing it, but only for as long as influencer, say influencer marketing specifically is a a medium that people want to throw money after, which is always hard in the music or always hard in the marketing space. It's like, you know, the channel that people are saying today is popular. People, their, their feelings about it change over the course of a year or two, right? They, mm-hmm. they, and, and, and you, know, you know, well from our conversations, are like the, you know, the feelings on platforms like Crosshair have changed from 2015 to today, right? Over the course of four years. And, um, and it's, it, it's my mind that like, Today, I don't know that you go and start another marketing agency. You know, I, I really think you help someone build their own internal agency. I think if you're really good at it. You go find a team that has not built an internal team yet. You go lead that team. Well, okay, here's a good example. So um, I believe it's Vector. Um friend of mine is was telling me that they have an internal agency there that's specifically like for brand partnerships for their management clients. And that you can go and hire that agency to represent you as well. And I'm sitting here going, like, yeah, I'd be going to every decent management company on the planet trying to build them a internal digital team, you know, or trying to build them an internal performance and growth team while I wait for the next medium. You see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hmm.
1: I I, I just don't know. I I mean, I've, I've thought about it and I keep thinking, how do I go, how do I make money at this? And it's like, you have to go deeper and deeper into one specific world which is a great thing, like obviously niches or riches, right? But it's like, you go deeper and deeper and deeper. eventually the, the, the window is so small for people's patience with certain channels that like you spend a lot of time investing in that. I'm not sure that I would want to sink all of my efforts there. You track it with me?
0: Totally. And your suggestion of building out, you know, as wide of a network as you can of these super small niche influencers From this new agency's perspective, it's like selling relationships more than selling skill, right? Like you're selling access more than skill. It
1: is. Yeah, no, exactly it is. Yeah. That's exactly the difference between, say, Crosshair and Gyrosity, right? Like Crosshair, we had relationships with playlisters and influencers, whatever, and we were selling access to that. Gyrosity, we were selling a skill performance-based deliverable around digital advertising. Like we are really good at this we can, you know, be whoever, we have high skill, high competency, high technical knowledge, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yeah, I mean, until that next skill, uh, frontier kind of opens up, I just don't, I, I, it, it becomes more of the same, you know? So, which is why, why we're in a situation where people are consolidating like those that didn't make it are shutting down and those that did make it are being purchased And there's a group of folks in the middle who will persist for a little while and and either make it to the next medium and be on the frontier, or they will just, you know, die out in the desert. It's it's just what happens with consolidation, right? Like, it's it's just what happens.
0: Right. Totally. So what's interesting to me is that on the one hand, you do have these companies consolidating on an ongoing basis, but then... Also, on the flip side, you have companies that are coming up in music and in general that are capitalizing on the quote-unquote gig economy.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I recently saw this described in an article as the distributed agency model. Yeah, Yeah. So in the context of music, if you're just like an individual person who happens to be a marketing expert, you can sign up to help an artist or label or whatever music company, right, on individual gigs. Kind of like the same similar mechanism to what someone would do on Fiverr or Upwork, yeah, that yeah. just happens to focus on music. There's a platform I know of called Indie Ninja that's specifically yeah. set up to do that. Yeah, so I'm wondering what you think the future of that model is going to look like, because I think a lot of things are still up in the air about the future of the gig economy in general, but it's definitely growing. Yeah. Um, more and more people yeah. are relying on that model as a primary or even just supplementary source of income and you know music is no exception to that
1: yeah no it's, it's, a, it's a great question and but before i hit that i think i want to go back real quick i, I did have another idea about um new agencies in the space, and this is something that, that i'm really envious of that i just personally can't do um one thing i think you could do in this space is um If you can get really, this is, not selling relationships really, it it is a skill set. If you can get really, really good, um, at cultural content, like relevant cultural content, visually video from, from, um, for, for maybe a a very specific subgroup, very specific ethnic group, a very specific like cultural group, um, it's, it's super valuable right now, and it's being paid for a lot. And the more I think about it, it's just something Garrison can't do. You know, like I'm a 26-year-old white dude from Arkansas. Like it's not, you know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not exactly <laughs> my, my competency. But they were, they were like, we have a partner down in San Antonio um, that's a multicultural agency that, you know, from a music perspective, they know so much about the Hispanic market in the Southeast United States. Um, they, I mean, they, could really, really influence a lot of Latin American artists trying to come to the States or, um, in other ways. And I think if you have a cultural competency there and are a great creative, great visual, visual individual, um, you could, you could really spin up an awesome little boutique creative consultancy around that. Um, yeah, that would, that would be really cool. Anyway, um, yeah, back to your question about the gig economy, um, it's funny you bring it up because how I started generosity was around a large network of freelancers. Um, I had a Google sheet of about, I think I probably had 200 freelancers um, at one point Hmm. and everything. Yeah. And everything from placing Facebook ads to, um, uh, you know, quick social content to administration to video editing. And I had like, I had a, I had a lot of open Upwork contracts, you know, so like guys that I would keep, men and women that I would keep, you know, open at any point. They were all over the world, and I would send them a gig, and they would knock it out, and I would pay them hourly, and you know, and that's that's how I kind of built built it from the beginning. From an agency perspective, it's not impossible. Um, it's just really hard um, with, with something like marketing, right? It requires both a bit of an art, an art touch and a science touch, right? So, I can, it, what it required for me to manage these folks well was to have explicitly laid out every day exactly what I needed them to do, by when, to the detail, almost to the point where it would have been better for me to do it myself in some ways, um, because I already had a little more nuanced understanding of what the client needed. Um, and so, these guys were really incredible executors. What they lacked was, and maybe it was based on my inability to communicate nuances to them, but it was, they lacked um, nuanced understanding of what really the client was looking for or what the strategy called for, you know? So I I would have, I would, you know, I would lay out, you know, targeting parameters on Facebook or lay out uh, creative parameters for my creative guys. And I thought I was being incredibly detailed and I'd get back stuff that was, Technically right, but it was just lacking something, some soul, some like heart to it, you know. You know what I'm saying? And, and um, and it's not that's not necessarily their fault. If I was sitting in the room with them, they would get it, you know. And so yeah, it, it became it became difficult to do it um with a lot of them because I was spending the majority of my time teeing up tasks and and deliver and and, and spending a lot of time going back and forth on what I consider to be subpar execution, it really ultimately was my fault because I couldn't communicate what I wanted to them, with, to them in a, a clean way. Um, and so it, what I what ended up happening was when I started hiring folks in person and started working out of the office, they started picking up on the nuances of what clients wanted um, and the nuances of really what it would take to make a strategy happen. And things started clicking at that point. Um, so in, in theory, it sounded like a phenomenal idea. Did not work well for me um, when we got really busy. It would work well for certain certain things, you know, um, but it did it did not work well for specifically content.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: con- content, it was incredibly difficult to to get what I wanted, and became a, a huge time waste. Placing Facebook ad orders um, was okay. Placing search or Google search orders was not great because there was a lot of lack of. Um, uh, just, just nuances in language around like what I thought good buyer keywords would be, and what they assumed additional good keywords would be, and they would not. It would not be in our particular language or in our culture. Um, so, so, if you're going to do it, you got to put a lot of time into making sure they a lot of time into making sure that they get what you're um, what you're talking about. So the, the ultimate problem, in my opinion, with the gig economy is that. You are spread out among so many different interests that you don't, you cannot do your best work really that way. I just, I don't know. I just, you, you, you execute it and it's done, but it doesn't have that extra ten percent of emotional intelligence that it requires to make excellent stuff. You see what I'm saying? It requires it to make excellent work products.
0: Yeah, yeah. long term commitment and just a lot of time spent one on one with whatever client or artist you're working with. Um, I'm actually thinking of how a lot of people say nowadays in the music industry that artists really need visual creative directors, like someone to help you know hone their visual brand. Yeah, yeah. So th- this is kind of my inference and there have been articles written about this as well. Part of an artist's visual brand is just having someone follow them on tour and take photos of them on tour and like to be their personal photographer, right? And regardless of how glamorous that is, That's an example of creative direction that ends up being actually extremely nuanced in terms of understanding how an artist prefers to be presented or how they go about their day to day, Mm -hmm. you know, how to not disturb what they're currently doing, what their current vibe is. I feel like you really need to spend weeks with an artist to really understand that. Yeah. Or just with any person, right? This is, it's, 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 it's the same case in any kind of business or creative relationship.
1: Yeah, and I would say that, that that is not a principle unique to music, right? That's a principle that's just a business principle. Um and, and truthfully it's been one of my biggest um struggles is because I want to do so many different things, I end up not giving the best, um the best of myself, the best of my creative thought
0: that, that I have a limited amount of every day,
1: you know, to it all. Some things suffers. So if I was, you know, a freelancer, a music marketing freelancer in the gig economy I would be in order to pay my my bills. I would be just churning through as many of them as possible, never giving them at scale the level of emotional intelligence needed to do great work. And there's another part of this that's a outsourced versus hire question because kind of tried and true principle: you don't outsource your core competencies, right? So if you're an artist, like you know your your visual brand and how you communicate yourself. And, and the emotions, well, the emotions behind it and how it gets to fans and potential future fans, it's really, really unwise to outsource that, right? Like, you know, so if you've got this creative director, if you have this creative director that you're sharing with a whole bunch of different different artists, you're never going to get the, the fit, shine, and the polish that you want out of that individual because they're not yours. You know, they're a lot of people's, and, and they I don't know. It ultimately comes down to like how much can we process in our emotional brain, right? How much can, can our souls process in a day to put out great work products?
0: Right. So just to shift focus a bit from the humans and the team, and then to talk about the tools a little bit. So in general, automation, I think is a really interesting topic in the context of marketing. I feel like every year there are new tools or new apps that claim to automate the marketing process somehow. And there are two that I've come across this year for music. Uh, One's called BeatChain. They've kind of been making the music industry conference circuit over the last year. And they claim to enable artists to automatically segment and then reach out to and retarget their audience across platforms and just make that process a lot easier. There's also another one called uh, Database Davy, yeah. which is based in New York, and they're trying to do something similar specifically with the goal of getting a song into the Billboard Hot 100. Like, how do you systematically do that by um, strategically retargeting certain types of fans? So this is a general question for you. Um, one, have you come across these tools yourself or do you use any of these tools in your day-to-day work, uh, you know, whether in music or in other industries? And then how do you think those types of tools have changed the role of a marketer in music?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, honestly. Um, believe it or not, I tend to err on the side of uh, the more you can automate, the better for the human, right? Because it frees up more of that emotional brain space, right? It frees up more of like what makes us us. Um, so as far as marketing automation goes, there are plenty of amazing platforms out there um, tried and true in the general business market uh, that you can use um, that, you know, we'll do things like automate your retargeting or automate your email. Um, or, I mean, there's one that we've used plenty called SharpSpring. That's a, um, basically it's a, it's a CRM and some part digital advertising, part email, part dynamics, uh, CMS, uh, for, you know, visitors visiting a website and it's, you know, resold their agencies, and we, we use that occasionally for projects. And they're all super, super slick, and they work great. you got to put good stuff in them, you know. Um, so, I mean, you know, really what you put in them you know, affects what comes out, right? <laughs> so, if you don't put good marketing in them, if you don't put good messages in them, and you have know, strong nuanced um, understandings of your audience in them, then you don't get any results out. But, definitely helps to scale an individual's time. Um, definitely, you know, definitely does what you would expect it to do. Um, as far as like music marketing goes itself. Um, my my issues always been that, well, okay, I'll, I'll give you an example. So, you know, Show show.co co purchased by CD baby a while back. Uh,
0: yes, I do know them.
1: So there, yeah. So there are these platforms that will, like I say, as we talked about here, handle and, Automate certain things um, that they do not provide strategy. Right? They provide tools. They provide tools and tactics, but they don't provide the why. You know, why do this versus that? And and the problem that I noticed ever working through Crosshair that business, like in all these different spaces, was no one could really no one could really advise someone on what to do when and why. It was here's a bunch of things for you to play with. Here's a bunch of platforms for you to use and, and, and they're really slick and they're cool and they got bells and whistles and they do things and flash and bang and pop, but you don't know when to use them and why. You can use a vast, um, variety of these to accomplish the same task. Um, if you don't have a, some of the basics down, like they don't do anything for you. You know, they, they don't solve for an emotional understanding of your audience, right? They don't solve for empathy with, with your audience. You see what I'm saying? Right, um, right.
0: I love that. They they don't solve for that question of why.
1: Exactly, exactly. But they do help scale you once you've, once you've got that nailed down. I mean, there's one called Shoestring. It's in the D2C brand world, and it's a retargeting tool, customer journey retargeting tool. And it's slick. It's really great, but you better have good audiences in there. And you better have good messaging. You better have good creatives, and you better know your audience.
0: I think this is actually a super common concept in tech at large. Like it's, it's like a garbage in garbage out scenario. Yeah. yeah. And, and to go back to what we were talking about earlier, this only reinforces that from an artist's perspective, you know, you're only as good as the team that you have around you and their commitment to an understanding yeah. of who you are and what you're trying to achieve. Because then otherwise, even with the most advanced tools, you're just like shooting in the dark.
1: Absolutely. Difficult, you know, like um, you really hope that the people you work with, have um, kind of and this in my opinion on artists, people you work with they have a solid kind of understanding of you as an individual I think one of the things that's unique about music is that you're selling um, and a, pers- like a person's ability to access their own emotions and create art out of it, right? Access their own feelings about things and create art out of it and, c- and create like the representation of that and if your team like getting tuned in with that, it's really hard to like hack around that with cool tools you know? And, and that's truly like why I stayed more on the um, marketing services side than, than going in-house anywhere was because um, I wanted to learn the difference between uh, the all the artists that, that don't work and the ones that do. For me, the biggest common, kind of common denominator on the marketing end is their team understands at a primal kind of reptilian level what works for their media and what does not. Yeah, you know, they have a, like a back of the brain, you know, um, <laughs> understanding of like what works and what doesn't. And like we had we had Billy Ray Cyrus as a client for a while, and um, he's an awesome guy, great family. And it was just before the uh, Old Town Road stuff happened. It was probably probably two months before that happened. And he was looking. His conversation with us was like, "I'm looking for a backdoor in to the, the, the. I'm looking for a back door into." Um, no, no, relevance is the wrong word, but a backdoor into country again. You know what can we do? And I gave them a whole bunch of strategies, um, a whole bunch of like, here, here are like techniques that we can use to promote something. But they did not have an understanding yet, a defined understanding yet of what it was that what the backdoor looked like to them. You see what I'm saying? Mm. Like, like what really was mm-hmm. that? And so you know we couldn't do anything. Like we couldn't, we couldn't help really. Because they hadn't they hadn't come up on that thing yet, um, and you know, and once they did, you see it happen. With like, he found, you know, he found Old Town Road, sent him a Twitter message, and said, "This is what I'm looking for." Um, and he, just, you know, him and him and his wife both kind of had a, a a really fundamental understanding of what they were looking for, and um, and you know, all the techniques in the world won't help you find that.
0: Right, right. Uh, I would imagine that particular interaction was also quite spontaneous, like that kind of opportunity is very unexpected.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I I don't know if that's exactly like, I don't know if he was looking for, if he could have described what he was looking for, you know? He he couldn't exactly describe it to us, but he was looking for some cultural kind of trend jacking way to be involved again, and he found it, and, and we weren't able to provide that to him. Um, because we had all, we had all the techniques and the tools in the world, but no, nothing to go with. You see what I'm saying? No, no substance yet to go with. And, um, you know, in part, all, all because he was
0: still trying to figure that out,
1: you're saying exactly. Yeah. It, it had, yeah. It had nothing to do really. Yeah. It was just simply just a timing thing. Um, so he was simply trying to figure it out himself, but a lot of people want to compensate for it with, you know, cool tricks. And it's just, you, you know, if the audience connects and if they don't, like, we had a campaign this year for a rodeo in Texas that we did some great messaging around. And because we got the messaging right, we sold a 45 X return on ad spend for that rodeo, like a dollar in $45 out every single time they spent a dollar with us on driving tickets. And it's because they, they had a solid understanding of their audience and our techniques worked. So, um, you know, it was pretty, pretty incredible.
0: Yeah. So just having that starting point and having that core, you know, super compelling messaging is super important before you even yeah, go sure. out and try to use whatever other tools out there. Exactly. Cool. So, in the interest of time, I think it's time for the last segment, the over underrated segment, and. I would love for you to start because I think the piece of news that you have in mind is super recent. I think it was just announced yeah, today, today yeah. as of recording this.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at the Spotify purchases uh, Sound Better from New York, basically becoming a music-making marketplace is kind of the headline. Um, and and I don't want to be a pessimist. I really don't want to end this on <laughs> like pessimism. I just think this is a way, way overrated piece of news. I, I, I would go so far as to say this is a big nothing. You know, I mean, it's. I really think if you step back from it and you look at Spotify, um, there is no way on God's green earth that they are anything in the future other than a music consumption platform. I, I don't think they become. I mean, I mean, just look at the frickin', uh dumpster fire that was their attempt to be a distributor, right? I mean, it's. It, I just, I just don't think it's anything. Um, and I mean, I'm reading articles about it, and it's like. You know, it's confirmed that it's becoming a very different type of two-sided proposition. After buying New York-based SoundBetter freelance marketplace, the idea being that there would be some subscription revenue from artists as well as subscription revenue from listeners. It's just—I it, it, feel like they're just grasping at straws. You know, I feel like it's a deviation from what they do, and the—and the, I'm not—I'm not in their position. I don't know. I'm not running the public company, but I, it feels like a deviation from what they do—a grasping at straws. And an attempt, and honestly, what they should be doing is just continue to expand globally, um, and and improve the infrastructure around consuming their 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 these the they facilitate us consuming, right? Like, you know, they, they should have been the first one to put out smart speakers. You know, there there is no reason these other companies should have done that. You know, um, and I'm still not convinced that um, Spotify isn't one of those organizations. That because it doesn't have a core business other than music consumption, isn't the first one in, first one out from a landscape perspective. You know, um, I just think because it doesn't have one of those other core businesses—hardware, managed services, ecom, whatever—that music, you know, helps facilitate. I just, I, just, I think, it's, I think it's grasping at straws. Does that make sense?
0: Definitely. So you're saying that a Spotify should really just be leaning in on the one thing that they have going for them at the moment, financially speaking. Yeah. And
1: And I'm going to be real controversial here and say that like no one and no one in music is going to like this, but they, from a business perspective, pure economic perspective were correct in going out, buying, paying someone to create intellectual property that they owned and uploading it to the platform as fake artists or whatever. Like they, they economically, it made sense to try and dilute out their biggest expense, which is paying out royalties, which sucks from a music consumption perspective. It's not great, but from a finance perspective, strictly running the business, like that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and there will come a point, there will come a point where that they might have to turn back to something like that and say, you know what? I mean, I I don't know. I feel like they're going to catch 22. You know, they, they can't, they can't drive that line item down because it, Threatens the reason people come to the platform. Um, and at the moment they try to drive that line item down, you know, the subscribers flee to the other platforms. And um, I don't know, it, it's a it's a scary, scary road for me going forward with them. So, anyways, this is the this news completely overrated. It's a big nothing.
0: So, I agree that Spotify is for sure, a consumer-facing platform, a consumer-facing business. They admit, as such, as a public company, and that should definitely be their priority. Um, That said, this acquisition of SoundBetter is maybe a shift in their acquisition strategy um, away from music-related content and then towards creator tools. And this actually really strongly parallels SoundCloud um, because SoundCloud completely shifted their strategy after laying off like 40% of their company and thinking, oh God, we actually need to make money. What do we do, right? Like we're not a public company. Now they've shifted entirely towards building creator analytics. Yeah, It's so interesting. They, they like don't really advertise a SoundCloud Go consumer product at all anymore. It's all about, hey, you're an artist or a potential artist. You should be getting better data and better analytics. And we're going to provide that. And yeah, you see similar moves with Spotify because they also uh, bought Soundtrap in 2017, and they bought Anchor, which is not music specific, but is another great example of one of these tools. Um, and in contrast, several years ago, Spotify was really busy acquiring companies like the Echo Nest and TuneGo, which were all very content and curation focused tech companies. Um, and maybe it's also kind of a press or perception kind of thing, like Spotify is really trying to convince the world hey, we're pro-artists and we want to help artists make a living off of their work. That's a motto that they say a lot, you know, like in investor meetings and, and blog posts. But that, frankly, is not what's going to make them more money.
1: No, for sure. I mean, the the, the Nest acquisition when it happened made a lot of sense to me because the one thing that was happening poorly, with the exception of Music Genome, was recommendation, right? And so playlist as a recommendation engine as a recommendation vehicle powered by Echo Nest, made a lot of sense to me. This Soundtrap acquisition, it, it, from what I read is they acquired it in 17. I don't think they've done a dead gum thing with it yet.
0: Yeah. The only thing that they really expanded on, I think was launching a podcasting specific tool set as opposed to just music production, which I believe was Soundtrap's origins. But yeah, yeah. apart from that, I haven't really heard anything in terms of growth of that product specifically.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it'd be interesting to see, it says here that, you know, it's going to be rolled out under Spotify for artists. So I'm assuming maybe you can do some production work in SFA and distribute and manage your analytics there, which if, I mean, I, I, I understand why they I don't know why they would shut the distribution portal down. if they're going to give you the production capability and then the analytics capability just I don't know maybe it's a temporary shutdown, but I can see the the desire for an ecosystem. It just feels like a a deviation um from from what they do what they, what they do, you know.
0: Yeah, it's like a deviation and then without that distribution element, it's definitely incomplete. That's how it feels.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't know That's
0: my take on it. Cool. So the piece of news that I wanted to talk about is that recently Netflix announced the official launch date for a new reality TV music competition that they're going to have on their platform. Um, It's called Rhythm and Flow, and it premieres on October 9th and is focused on hip hop. Yep. And they have a whole panel of celebrity judges, you know, as you always got to have with this stuff. And the judges are Chance the Rapper, Cardi B, and T.I., and I also think this is highly overrated for a couple of reasons. So one, I watched the official trailer on YouTube um, before this podcast. And I think Chance the Rapper said that it's quote unquote hip hop's first legit TV competition. Um, and I think that is just completely outrageous. One, there's a history that goes decades back of hip hop related competitions and TV shows on you know through channels like BET at least in the US but then also now if you think globally reality TV uh, maybe is not as relevant in the US anymore but plays a super important role in a lot of other countries I'm thinking like in China and Korea basically the hip-hop and rap reality TV shows in those respective countries act as the top funnels for artists to get signed to major labels and then actually break So they're still treated as super important channels. So just get that out of the way. I think that claim is totally false. Two, I really don't think Netflix as a platform is made for this kind of show. And there's actually a really good article in the New York Times that talks about this um, and goes into how a lot of weekly updated, more newsy talk shows specifically on Netflix ended up getting canceled after just one or two seasons uh, because there was pretty low engagement around them. I think uh, Hassan Minhaj's show Patriot Act is a huge exception, but what essentially happened is that the format of a lot of these shows and the way they're released went against the whole binging culture that Netflix played a really significant role in defining, I would say. Like, that kind of activity is our whole selling point, um, and that kind of release cadence in terms of releasing everything all at once for you to consume all at once right away. Whereas with these Newsy shows and then with Rhythm and Flow as well, they're going to be releasing the episodes in smaller batches. So I think for this music show specifically, the first four episodes come out in the first week and then the next four come out the next week and then so on. Um, And I don't know if it's a bad thing. It's just like, to me, it's like reverting back to a cable experience. It's like cable in new clothes and it could be good in terms of, like, recreating that sense of a shared media experience that maybe is lost in this era of on-demand video streaming. But the show specifically feels like, definitely feels like a reversion rather than an innovation to me.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's really funny that you brought that, you that up. And it's like, we had a client for a while, there was a TV show called One Shot. Did you ever hear One Shot on BET?
0: One Shot? No. Actually, I have
1: not. Yeah, so you need to Google One Shot on BET. It was a hip-hop competition... Um, for um, uh, MCs, right? The idea was like, who's the best MC on the, and in the country, and it, it was interesting. You know, it was it was interesting to watch. It was like privately funded and then acquired by BET, and we were some of the marketing, we were some of the digital team on it uh, a couple years ago. And um, I don't know. To me, it just looks like as, as I look at it and watch the trailer earlier, it just looks like it's. Another part of the original content play, the, the the pop culture original content play that Netflix got going on, it's like if we can get three popular folks doing something semi familiar, you know, it's just I, I I think it's probably more for the fact that it's going to be on the thumbnails there than it's going to be to actually get engagement, in, right? That's like, so true. The fact the fact that Chance and the guys are on the thumbnail. I'm
0: actually thinking now that so there's one show or it might be a film. Um, I clearly have never watched it on Netflix, but. Common is one of the main stars. Yeah, and he just shows up all the time on my homepage because I happen to watch a bunch of hip hop related stuff on Netflix. Yeah, exactly. Um, that that's such a good point. It's like visual optimization of surface level material rather than, uh, you know, the actual show.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure they won't fund it for very long if it doesn't do well. But it's just like it's something else to talk about in the new content cycle. That have people like us talking right Like
0: yeah that that is true it's it's working now <laughs> yeah
1: exactly exactly yeah I, I'm with you though. I agree completely
0: cool so uh, I'm wondering if you have any last thoughts that we didn't touch upon that you wanted to share or maybe is there anything that you're working on now that's interesting that you might want to highlight
1: um yeah I, I can touch a little bit on the um, intellectual property um, development Thing that I'm working on. I mean, I, I think something that folks should pay a lot more attention to over the next few years. And, and I'm, I'm hesitant on this because it's, it's kind of scary, but I really think we're getting to the place where, um, some of the basic economics of the industry as a whole don't make sense. The recorded music industry as a whole don't start to make sense. Like, for example, the, how easy it is to create quality music today and distribute it. Um, there's always so much time. There's only so many people. Um, and yeah, I, I, one of the projects I'm working on that I told you about is, you know, AI-generated instrumental music at scale. Um, and it's something that, you know, we've been using some different platforms for and uh, seeing, like, how quickly can we... How quickly and for how cheaply can we create very high-quality instrumental music to feed in the background of playlists and, you know free Pandora radio and places like that. Um, and I mean, we've been able to create, you know, 50, 60 plus tracks in less than a month that are all incredible. Um, and I mean, it's just, the scale, the scale at which you can put out music that, uh, some of these production technologies allow you to do. It's is scary. Um, and so people would be, people would be wise to keep an eye on that and just determine where they want to be, where they want to be in that because it's, we can't ignore it. It's here. It's happening, and it's gonna. In my thing, is gonna fundamentally change whether there is a. Re- I mean, it'll fundamentally impact whether there's a recorded music industry or not. Um. So, right,
0: because it totally just changes the meaning of that word recording. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it, it was, yeah. I mean, it was, like obviously the re- the um, kind of confirmation from the copyright office that said yes, we will not issue copyright to music. The artist of, you know, content created by a machine, it has to have some human input, blah, blah, blah. But the, the idea of substantial human input is going to be debated a lot coming, in, you know, in, in the future here. Um, and, and as, as like the line between, uh, predict, well, predictive, um, I guess predictive production technology and like just regular digital audio workstations is blurred, like, you don't even have to use an AI platform. You just use, you know, some of logic's prediction tools, right? Like he said this, do you want to also do this? And I mean, that's just like, that's stuff that people are working in every day to build the tracks that we listen to. And um, at some point, at some point there's going to be this line that's crossed where like, those are no longer copyrightable. Um, and and people generation after generation put so much out. It's just like, it's just going to, there's going to be so much of it, you know, and as, as other countries come online and stuff, you know, their creators will come online. Um, so I, I would just be watching this space really carefully. Because it's, it's fundamentally going to affect anybody that wants to be in this world. Um, so, anyway, know, so don't mean to leave on like a negative note. I just, you know, I think that's really important for folks. To pay no, to I do.
0: personally don't think it's negative at all. Um, I think it's realistic. Yeah. And I think it's valuable. I mean, if there's any lesson from building any tech company in general, let alone a content company, it's to have the worst case scenario in mind before you build, Yeah. right? Like assume that the worst will happen at some point and then take that into account in your product development process so you don't find yourself falling down before, you know, before you even have the chance to grow.
1: Yeah, for sure thanks for having me by the way i appreciate you reaching out
0: oh yeah my pleasure thanks again for joining thank you so so much for listening to episode 13 of the water and music podcast If you like what you heard, I would really appreciate a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the follow on Spotify, and or any other action on whatever listening platform of your choice. This podcast is also completely ad-free thanks to the support of super generous and kind members on Patreon. If you're interested in supporting and keeping this podcast ad-free for as long as possible, you can contribute as low as $3 a month or as much as $40 or even more per month by visiting patreon.com slash sherryhoo. That's patreon.com forward slash C-H-E-R-I-E-H-U. Thank you so much again for listening and hope to see you next time.